You look fine, so that's fine. Just leave it. Hi. I'm Matt Welch. Vain girl I'm not, was you, editing her I photo. I did not think I looked very good, and your face is hidden by the mic. So good. I perfect. wanted to change it, but YouTube, I don't know how to do it. So no one's here anyway, so who cares? Yeah. Right. Um, Hi. Hey. So. Um, hey, Nancy. Sing it, dude. <laughs> We're going to have uh, Nancy going to Mexico. Not that that's any of your business. Um, but uh, by the time uh, she gets back, I think we're going to have a theme song. For a new little new little podcast. That's right. That I'm going to be doing. And, uh, it's called Hey Nancy. It's called Hey Nancy. <laughs> no comma. And uh, someone I know to my left is writing me a little theme song. Already wrote it, actually. Yeah, it just, just needs to be executed. Yeah, we need like a lot of other voices and, mm -hmm. you know, effects Claps, and drums and, yeah. yeah. So um, I'll be back from Mexico at the end of the month, and then we'll get some peoples in this little studio that we built. We're coming to you from uh, Paloma Media in China. Stop, 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 stop. Honor that and um, celebrate it. I mean, we so this is the what the third or the fourth time that we've turned on mics in this studio it to is, talk about stuff. We have we did have a lost episode because it's gotta have one. Yeah, it's lost because the sound was so terrible. So anyway, uh, this is really the third that we'll be airing. Okay. So, uh, but in each case, we ended up talking about times things, and then they just as they they keep they keep making new things. So previously, we talked about the Donald McNeil case, which we won't reiterate too much here. Uh, and then, uh, what was it? I forget. Um, well, no, actually, we, we started with Donald McNeil, and then we continued, and we were also talking about, you know, the Daily and just... And Andy Mills and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But since then, there's been a whole bunch of other things, and Nancy's been reporting this out, um, which you'll be reading hopefully soonish, which yeah. means they have to write it, I think. I know. I've, it's been a busy week, yeah. and I'm getting on a plane in the morning. So I'll try to do... I'm either going to watch a movie on the plane and cry, because that's what you do yes um or i'll be writing and i'll probably be writing so yes i am reporting this out i have been talking to some people oh i know what we we talked about last time we talked about the nicole hannah jones tweet yes and the the times pr um you know uh saying that uh, there was an inadvertent uh doxing <laughs> semi-doxing of the free beacon reporter which is just a, a bizarre thing um but there's like since then there's been 75 different developments but maybe even before we talk about that um i think we should answer the eternal question of like who gives a rip nancy why should we care about the weird um flappings around of the new york times well, I think we should care because, I mean, they do call it the paper of record and they call it that for a reason because I think for a long time, I believe, and people will disagree with this, I believe for a long time they really tried to do that and be that. I think that they did care about um, what was going on with their fellow Americans. Um, it wasn't always about having a political point of view or, or siphoning the news through a particular lens. Like, they were interested and they, not everybody, but they had our trust, right? You kind of trusted. You might not like all of it or like the opinion pieces or give a crap about the movies that they're reviewing, but you had a sense that you, they were pretty solid. They had the money and they had the bodies on the ground, like everywhere. And I feel at this point, 
they have lost my trust. And, you know, you could say, and we were talking about this at lunch, like you could say, okay, look, I'm kind of like done with the opinion pieces. And I want to talk a little bit about that later, about how, why we're reading what we're reading in opinion. But we'll get to that. And you, or you might not like care about the culture stuff and say, oh, it's culture war stuff. But listen, if I can't trust you on this because I know it has to go through like this giant gauntlet to get there, how do I trust you on Afghanistan? I don't. I don't trust the way that they're choosing to deliver the news. And I think that that matters when maybe the most previously well-respected newspaper in the world has lost our trust. I, I think that's a big deal. I think there's also an argument that uh, the Times is a bellwether. For a long time, it's been the paper that all um, the smaller daily newspapers in the country uh, aimed to emulate and their reporters wanted to end up working there. Um, I have long argued that that's a mistake because the Times is a product of a, of a rarely uh, competitive newspaper market in New York City. There's a bunch of different newspapers that do different things. And so by emulating, you know, when the LA Times tries to emulate the New York Times, that means it's not doing the, po- the stuff that the New York Post or the Daily News does and should think about doing, like cover yeah. local politics and crime. Well, um, so I think there's always been a problem of that. But uh, Times has been a bellwether uh, for the media industry, the journalism newspaper industry. Um, but you can also say, I think, increasingly a bellwether for, um, you know, f- trying to come up with a non-pejorative way of saying this, but sort of a managerial liberalism or progressivism, and uh, especially lately the more late uh, variants. Um, again, what's a non-pejorative way, but more like I, the where identity politics is going in on the left side of the political spectrum, the Times is kind of leading. And so these, these sure. clashes that are in the paper, which a lot of has been reported out uh, in the wake of the Donald McNeil thing in particular, but also Andy Mills and some other things. That's the, that, <laughs> that is the clash. And it's very funny. Uh, our uh, mutual friend, Barry Weiss, a year ago or in the summer was excoriated by a whole bunch of people in the building. This is before she uh, left um, by when she pointed out in the wake of the Tom Cotton op-ed thing that, there is a fundamental conflict at the paper between the wokes who are younger and the old newspaper farts who are older. And they have a different idea about liberalism, uh, different ideas about uh, newspapers. And everyone's like, that's just not true. How <laughs> dare you say that untrue thing, you person who always says untrue things. And it's like everything that's happened, it just shows that she was right. Completely right. Um I, I had a piece in Newsweek about a week ago uh, regarding what happened to uh, Donald McNeil Jr. And I got a really, really beautiful uh, email from someone who had been in the barrel himself, uh, including the Times excoriating him, and he sort of got canceled and lost his job. And he, he wrote me a very, very sweet piece for saying, you know, thank you so much for, like, telling the truth. But here's the deal. He said, you can't fight the New York Times. And I was like, yes, you can. Yes, you can. What happens if you decide? Well, I mean, that's, I think, a subplot of the fight between the Silicon Valley and New York Times. Right. And, sorry. I'll, I'm sorry. But when I say fight, I will repeat, I never really want to fight against anybody. I want to just put good work out. And if it happens to be, like we're sitting here talking, um, pushing back against their ethos or what they're doing, okay, well, that's fighting. But you just have to speak the truth as you see it and, and also – create new mediums because if people are going to start losing trust they want to go someplace where they trust what people are saying where they're getting some enjoyment where they wake up in the morning not just like wanting to chew a bunch of nails like they want to 
be part of something interesting. You know, we're hoping to do that. You see that they're doing that on Clubhouse. Some people are doing it on Substack. And in a way, that is, it's fighting by being positive, by putting positive stuff out in the world and saying, I'm not interested. I'm just not interested in what you're doing anymore. I'm real. I'm actually becoming disinterested in what the New York Times does. The, um, uh, I, I think a, a, an interesting part of the kind of bellwether question um, in which the, the Times on, on a now kind of a daily basis is, is demonstrating is the extent to which it's become mainstream in journalism circles to shrink the public square, not expand it. I mean, the, the post-war mission of, of journalism was widely understood to be we're going to expand the public square, create a big one, people can hash out ideas, but hopefully also you know get to a certain type of, of truth or common understanding. There's lots of fictions that were baked into that model to be sure, but there was always an aspiration of a bigger public square uh, on a daily basis. We're seeing journalists, um, you know, being tattletales, you know, trying to, uh, to appeal to Twitter's terms of service to say, oh, this person should be kicked off or, or you know, you, we, the Fox News should be kicked off the air yeah. or, you know, the, the, this sitting. Because it hurts me. The sitting, uh, you know, politician shouldn't have an account, um, and that's new. And and so uh, part of the fight that we've seen uh, uh, since in the last week, um, there was an article about a guy who's had a blog for years called Slate Star Codex. And if this is all new to you, it's going to be a little bit hard to understand. But I'm not going to get in the weeds of it. Um, basically, dude, super rationalist, Bay Area kind of nerd. Uh, blogger, deep thinker, long writer. I don't know how he writes 40,000 <laughs> words a day, but okay. Uh, he's, a, he's a psychologist <laughs> or a therapist of some sort. He's, he's a, I think he's a psychiatrist, actually. And uh, and uh, he's overlapped in, in uh, kind of uh, some uh, circles uh, with, with everybody probably at some point. Um, but anyways, he's been this writer for a long time. Last year, The Times was going to do a big piece on him and this part of it. And his name uh, uh, was an anagram of Scott Alexander, which was his first two names, but that wasn't his last name. Um, and The Times, as part of this, said, well, you know, we're going to use your full name. He freaked out because it's bad for patients, bad for business, and just he was, he was worried. And he's also worried that they were going to kind of heavy breathe that maybe he was a white supremacist or that he had uh, racist friend, I, okay, friends I'll or something. Can I just ask yes. you a question? Yeah. If they had not wanting to do the smear job that they kind of did, do you think they would have honored his request? If they liked him, if they thought he was like a super terrific guy, we want to write a piece about you, and it's like, hey, sure. great, but could you not use my last name? The standard, what as, as uh, Robbie Swabby wrote at Reason at the time, um, last summer when this came up, uh, because basically before that article came out, uh, the guy who wrote the blog uh, said, screw it, I'm deleting my blog because yep. I don't want to get revealed. And as Robbie pointed out at the time, uh, the Times has honored other people's yep. uh, requests to be uh, to be anonymous, even though they were also kind of uh, easy to find if you've tried really hard. So it's always a super great idea as a journalist to piss off the people you're writing about. I mean... Um, Sometimes you have to. You, I hope you 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 take my meaning from that. If people are trusting you, you're talking about them. Like, don't do that. There was no reason for them him for them to name. Him. So when that happened, there was a big kind of Silicon Valley like enough already uh, feeling uh, or expression of feeling towards the New York Times and particularly its tech reporters. I think to overgeneralize. Um, reporting on uh, technology in Silicon Valley in particular has gone from being pretty gee willikers, they're inventing the future, they're awesome, they're great, it's fast company all the way down, to being more Kara Swisher 
um, like rancid, um, and like these these titans are are uh, enabling uh, these terrible things. And part of that is the public square discussion too. Like they're not policing the public square in the way that we'd like them to, or they're allowing for unauthorized discussions and et cetera. So this moment last summer became a moment when a lot of people in Silicon Valley is like, screw those people once and for all. Don't ever deal with the New York Times. Uh, Clubhouse, I think sort of, Mm-hmm. You know, which came out of some of that, which Nancy has been uh, become a den mother since the last Holy time. Holy mackerel. We did a uh, Liz Wolf, a uh, staff editor at Reason and I, we did a little one on Monday night, like literally just like, OK. And then we we jumped in Robbie Suave because he was there. We have 400 people there, which was nuts. And we're going to be doing it again this uh, coming Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern time over on the clubhouse. Um, I actually have a few uh, invitations, but anyway, whatever. Um, yeah, join it. It was it was super fun. But continue. Um, so I think Clubhouse um, is is part of the idea of other people creating their new squares for right. themselves. Like, okay, we're just not going to deal with you. Uh, and there was this tension, uh, especially with uh, the Times Technology, one of their technology reporters, Taylor Lorenz, who kept going in. She has a Medium page in which she sneaks into Clubhouse, hears some, you know, hears someone she thinks. Uh, say the word retard or something, and like, uh, and like says, "Oh my God, I can't believe they said this this shocking, awful thing." And she like collects them all. It's a really uh, and, and posts the screenshots of the people that were in the room, yeah. and then actually made a mistake about who she was tagging. That she said it was Mark Andreessen, and it wasn't. And then, you know, but the funniest thing about that was when, and we were talking about this at lunch. Uh, was it her or somebody that said, "I, I, they're not taping at Clubhouse. How am I supposed to be a journalist and do my work?" I was like. Are you kidding me? That's my do some fucking reporting. That's what you do. Their tweet on the, so they wrote a feature on on uh, Clubhouse today, which is actually it wasn't the worst feature. Um, but the tweet uh, advertising it was like, um, you know, this place is allowing for unfettered conversation. And as many people pointed out, like why why you want to fetter? Yeah. <laughs> well, who's who's pro fetter? Who's pro fettering? And, and that's actually kind of a thing that's happening in journalism. Like, oh my God, you know, pod, uh, Reuters had a piece that podcasts are yeah. a, lo- a free speech loophole. Like, what? Um, you know, and and there will be pressure put on. We're doing this through YouTube here. Um, I don't know what uh, what things that the. That you've gotten on uh, on uh, podcast platforms now, but like those, whoever does these things will be under pressure at various points for hosting things because, and a lot of that pressure is being led by journalists, and that is such the bass backwards position from where it used to be. Um, so the the piece finally came out because uh, Scott Alexander, or whatever his actual name is, um, uh, he decided to out himself a couple of weeks right. back, back, restart his blog and sort of like talk about things. And it's a, it's a lovely piece. Go go read it. And so finally, in response to that, the Times uh, uh, printed its long-awaited piece. And what's um, I think indicates the power shift of the moment, um, and I use that word on purpose, um, is that the piece is not good at all. There no. was, a, there was, a, there was a, a, an actually a really good piece about – the previous imbroglio with the Times and Slate Star Codex written in the New Yorker that um, uh, last fall, I think, uh, and I forget the writer of it, who sort of described the rationalist uh, movement mm-hmm. from which he emanates. And I'm sure he got a couple of things wrong or she got a couple of things wrong. But it largely, you know, it was an attempt to go into a world and try to describe it for outsiders. It was a good faith attempt. The Times had all this time to do this piece and it was crap. 
I also said, and you know, I, I didn't read the New Yorker piece, I don't think, but you know, there's really something to be said, like to try and go into a world and try to understand it and to speak to the characters and you know, kind of give it some context. The writer of the Times piece, you know, about Slate's Dark Codex was like, uh, well, how did he phrase it? He said, you know, he was writing to appeal to the psyche of uh, Silicon Valley. And I was like, I never thought I could be so angry at the word the. So <laughs> that shows you the incuriosity of that writer who has decided, oh, there's one Silicon Valley type. They're all exactly the same. It's like cookies. We just stamp them out. What? This is just, this is not, why are you so incurious, New York Times? Well, why? Because they've got their enemy, right? That's the thing. It's the power dynamic of it. This piece can be read, and I think accurately, and this sort of pains me to say, through some ancient memory of, of a world being different, um, <laughs> that it's an act of retribution, uh, almost. It is, it, is a, it is an exercise of power. There was actually a piece that I saw someone retweeting out today that was written in the Columbia Journalism Review last oh. October by Hamilton Nolan, a former Gawker uh, alum like so many of the people who don't do journalism in the way that I appreciate tend to be. And I say that out of reverence and friendship with Nick Denton. Um, but um, I do. Um, but uh, uh, he wrote a piece saying, uh, yeah, media is about using its power to cut down the powerful people. That's our job. And it's like, wow, that's our job? Really? Nobody told me. I've been doing this 23 years. My job is to, I'm, wow. Wouldn't just, wouldn't that be a delightful beat? Who can I cut down today? What, how much joy? Axe. Axe body spray. Um, So yeah, it it can be read, I think, as a, as that exercise in kind of cutting down and, and also to point in areas where there are people having conversations and building worlds that do not depend on and actually have a sense of hostility after a while towards the traditional gatekeepers of journalistic uh, discussion and thought. Um, And that's fascinating to watch uh, because I think that there's a big uh, there's a big business question afoot in front of us right now, not just in newspapers, certainly in cable news, but elsewhere. This happens at this happens every you know, uh, changing of the of, of who has the keys to the White House. Uh, sadly, it shows that we're too, you know, presidentially focused in our lives and stupid. But um, it's like, what does media do after Trump? Oh, well, what does the New York Times do uh, after Trump? It was the resistance paper along with the Washington Post. Um, there ain't no resistance. To that's no right. So we were talking about this when we walked into the subway. It's like, okay, so the New York Times, which was having troubles financially, just like most newspapers, they're like, what did they they times seven their business when Trump came in. Like, they went berserk with subscribers because so many people were angry. And the Times was angry, and we're going to get them now. It's going to be Russia. It's going to be Stormy Daniels. It's going to be whatever. So they were doing pretty well, flushing cash, and they hired a lot of people. Well, you know what? People aren't – they're not angry anymore. So, okay, so you're going to lose some subscribers. That's just – that's normal. You're going to shed some. Okay. Now – You've got this new sort of um, angry beat where, you know, everybody is your enemy. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of bored by it, and I don't think it's very interesting, and I don't think there's a giant audience for this. So let's do some numbers. If you've lost all your anger subscribers and you're alienating people that don't want to 
you know, just have this identity politics be the scrim through every story. As I said, if I can't trust you in the opinion pieces, how do I trust you on, on Afghanistan? People are just going to stop reading. Okay, so what happens to their business model when they have now lost, I don't know, 50% of their readers? Well, we don't know that. But no, 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 I'm not saying what yeah. if. I'm, I'm, I'm posing a, a possibility. What happens when their readership and their subscriptions start to shrink and they have less money? What happens? Oh, they're going to have to let employees go. We all know this. We've all been in a, we've all been at publications where there's been downsizing. I mean, this is the story. It's of, like the natural state of humanity is abject poverty. The natural state of newspapers is layoffs. Is attrition. It's going to happen. So what happens at the Times when you start laying off people, people who have decided that um, they need whoever it is more representation, and they found it at the Times, and they found the place where they could like you know, be one. What happens when you start, when you fire them? Because you have to, because you can't support it anymore because people don't want that particular message. What happens, Matt? That's going, all the divisions that are happening uh, in, at the union at the paper, which is fascinating, which came up very much yeah. in the Donald McNeil thing. The union fought for Donald McNeil in 2019 when the offense in question happened. Um, the union seemed to be, through outside reporting, a little bit more split in 2021 as Donald McNeil was shown. It had a new, I believe in 2019, it got a new, um, it got a new president. So I think oh. it was, the, I think it was, I don't know this for sure. I think it may have been the old regime. I think it was a guy named somebody Glickson that may have been there when they were fighting for McNeil. And uh, as, um, what's his face, Aaron? Aaron Sabarium. Sabarium. Yes. I don't know his I, I keep confusing it with the fifth column listener. Um, uh, different Aaron. But um, uh, as he pointed out uh, in his reporting on it, I think it was his reporting, that the, there's a reason why the Times employees, um, uh, like in the, there was a letter of 150 employees that we raised hackles on previously that's basically like intent doesn't matter in language, um, but that they use uh, words like harm. We have... We have, uh, you know, we feel harm or we feel threatened. Um, that triggers certain labor protections. So like, it, like it gets around traditional uh, labor union concerns or protections on the employee in question, um, which is super fascinating just as a question of, of labor law, um, but also as a question of plain language and normal courage, like a word that someone said on a trip caused me harm in this newsroom. Um and they also, and this relates to a piece by Ben Smith, who's all about... Someone uh, just... Uh, hi, people. I'm, I am reading your questions and your comments. Someone just asked about the Ben Smith article. It's making me... And thank you, Abraham, about, yes. about my hair. You're wrong, but thank His you. His hair looks uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh, 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 the Times letter uh, of 150 journalists, who presumably are members of the union as well, uh, is a letter that was like demanding an apology to them by their fellow guild member. Um, really weird. For saying something a year and a half ago to a student in Peru. They wanted the apologies. And if they felt harmed by that, how are they going to feel when they get laid off? And how are they going to react? And who's got to have an enemy? I'm, I'm sorry. It's going to be a mess. I mean, enemies uh, work in journalism when the readers uh, are, have a sense of fight or flight response 
to the person in question. And a lot of people had that response. We were at a, a dinner last night where people sort of like, why are people so angry under Trump? Well, a lot of people felt like directly threatened or just horrified by him in a way um, that had them like this for a long time. And maybe I was that person a little bit or in my own way. Hopefully I don't do this with my hands because it's weird. Um, but uh, but like you can understand that, it, that you can locus um, your sense of fear and loathing on someone who has power it doesn't match up with like random people, you know, actresses uh, who who use different pronouns as a joke on uh, on on their Twitter account. That's not the say they're not going to hurt you. Those people are not out there going to threaten your livelihood as a reader. So like you you don't you don't wake up in the morning saying, "My god, there might be a conservative in Hollywood. You know, we got to do something about it." But an- anger is animating and it gives you an I- identity and you now have all these other people that are that are around you and it, it's like we're it's like a movement and we're swelling and we're angry and we're angry again. You know it'd be so cool if you took all that energy and did some cool work. You know someone actually said to me uh, and I don't know this, so do not quote me because I don't know if it's true. But someone said, you know, maybe N- Nicole Hannah-Jones could do some more writing because he, he said she'd written two pieces this year. You know, like, take all of this energy you have to be angry. And maybe she's out and being, in, you know, an emissary for 1619. I don't know what she's doing. But instead of just being angry all the time, like, go out and make something. She's a talented writer, too. Um, Is she? I've, uh, yeah, she wrote a, a great piece about oh, the buses? Th- about busing, yeah, yeah, uh, the yeah. history of busing, which yeah. I disagreed with the conclusion of it, but uh, but it was well reported. It was a so good history. So I would like, to, I would personally want to see more writing from her than just, I don't know, trashing. There was people. a line in the Ben Smith piece, so he went and, re- and re-reported uh, some of the kids uh, who had been on the trip with Donald McNeil and co- had complained about him, um, and a quote from one of them was like, uh, you know. It's weird because usually adults in that situation have no problem with giving us an apology. Yeah. Uh, we had a little discussion about this on the clubhouse the other day. Um, someone was saying, well, you know, the girl that, that talked about how she, you know, communicated with Donald McNeil while she was on the trip because she kind of really wanted to. She was 17. He was kind of this curmudgeonly cranky 65-year-old. I mean, it sounds, sounds dreadful for him. But anyway, um, they were like, well, should she have, you know, should she have gone on the record? You know, she might be exposing herself to, but I was like, you know, maybe we need more people. Um, actually, she's young, she's 19, but you know what? She wanted to speak on the record, and I, I think that was great. And I actually appreciated her giving some roundness to this story as opposed to just this sort of like anonymous Yelp reviews that they gave to the guy, which is what the the, the Daily Beast had, had used. And what I think is interesting about her question, it's not that it reflects poorly on her necessarily. Um, it might, might not, whatever, she's a kid. Um, but uh, it's that she's actually reflecting a culture where it, there's an expectation now, at least in some corners of the culture, that it's a normal thing for... Uh, people of certain age station belief systems to demand, uh, expect, and usually receive apologies from the olds who haven't caught up to the the ever changing mores. Um, that's weird, dude. That I is mean, weird. Like I, if we did that to our parents, they'd be like, "What the fuck? Go get my Newports kid." Like, you know, <laughs> what? I mean, you you have to face this. A, my, my I have a grown a young adult child who is very not of that ilk. At all, she looks at. She's like, "What is what's wrong with these people?" But you know, you have to. You have a little bit at home, and it's like tween, tweens, Brooklyn tweens. Um. Well, one thing that, that dad, that's homophobic. No, I shouldn't say. That to me. No, 
<laughs> what are you going around saying, faggy fag? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, the Ben Smith piece, I was actually, you actually texted it to me. I was the first, I was wherever I was, and like exclamation point, because he really kind of, he kind of put it on the line. He's like, okay, so New York Times, are you going to continue to try to like really talk to a broad arena, worldwide arena, or are you going to say, you know what? We're changing lanes now. We're going to be. We're going to have a more narrow cast, and it's going to be. He said the uh, the American version of the Guardian. Yeah. I, that didn't. I didn't really resonate with me. I don't read the Guardian that much. But um, I was like, well, sure, they can do that. They can absolutely decide that they want to talk to instead of talking to you know, five hundred million people that they want to talk to five million people. That's they can totally do that. But what happens to your business model? It just has to change. And maybe it does. You know, maybe maybe the New York Times is sunsetting in a way. And that's fine. I, I actually am fine with that because I'm just kind of bored at this point with, with, with what they're doing. I don't find it to be trenchant. And, I mean, I'm sure some of it is. But it's just like, yeah. Uh, let's go to uh, a, a question from uh, Leah Grant. Will you guys be doing these podcasts on a regular basis or just randomly when there's something you want to talk about? Uh, listen, we... Just the first time that we did this, it was be, let's see if the dummies can work the machinery. Yeah, we are. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and this time we have a we have a serious upgrade. We okay, we did have to call in uh, Michael. We did Morgan. have to call Michael Money and put him on like, speakerphone and walk us through. How can to, we plug that machine can into can that I thing on the thing? Um, so uh, uh, and also we're just like testing stuff out, like uh, like oh, let's try to do something live on YouTube, which is something that the Fifth Column has never done. I think uh, Reason Roundtable. Did one live or, or Did one? Did you do one yesterday? Didn't you? No, but we don't. We don't. We don't, you don't like stream it. We don't stream it live. Okay. I think we've done it in the past. Anyways, it's just a, a chance to experiment. Um, uh, now that we've kicked the tires a few times, um, I predict that there will be a proper podcast with a really good theme song. Um, <laughs> called uh, Hey Nancy, hey Nancy. Um, and I, which I like because it just makes me laugh every time I say it so that's good that's right? a good sign you want a um, laughing podcaster but she's going to get people at her table yeah. um, uh, uh, you know don't want to predict too much the future because these things just develop their, yeah. in their own way but uh, certainly when we were talking about this uh, like uh, one ideal is you know Nancy gets two people together and talk about stuff yep and um and will Matt and I do this sometimes? Yeah, we'll do this sometimes because we're it's the conversations we're we're having anyway, and people seem to dig it. So yeah, we'll be doing it sometimes. Um, Brian uh, mentioned the. Have you guys already discussed the death of Rush Limbaugh? No, we haven't. We, we haven't. Um, saw that news on the subway, literally coming yeah, over. Yeah, coming over here. It was announced forty minutes ago. Be interested to hear your take on its effect on the media landscape. Um, I will uh, venture a preliminary one, which is that. That sense of uh, that I mentioned, first of all, that he's uh, he was an incredible radio interviewer, uh, innovator. He uh, innovated, talk, he created modern political talk radio, um, and just like the way that Roger Ailes created the modern cable TV show and cable network for good and for ill in both cases. Um, I uh, always appreciate the hustle and the game of an innovator, even if I don't personally like them. And I didn't like Limbaugh. I, pre I appreciated uh, and would occasionally listen to the way he uh, kind of created a universe around him, this whole sort of ditto heads thing. A guy who, who reminds me of that a lot um, that people probably wouldn't draw a direct connection to is Jim Rome, the sports uh, podcaster. Uh, not podcaster, sort of sports broadcaster. Um, probably most famous for his uh, his uh, uh, 
like a fight with uh, Jim Everett, former Rams quarterback. But um, he's got a great radio show and has for thousands of years. And he creates this whole um, – uh, UC Santa Barbara. He and I were both at uh, KCSB back in the day. KCSB. Uh, um, but uh, – uh, he, you know, creates this and in, 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 in encourages an entire subculture around it in the same way that Limbaugh did. Um, and so, you know, respect in, in that sense. Uh, and at the same time, I think uh, Limbaugh was the embodiment um, and created the template in which the talk radio, in addition to being a haven for people who felt left out um, by mainstream media for a long time, uh, artificially, whatever, they just, the, the public square that had been constructed by the LA Times of the world were not satisfying the type of people who flocked uh, first to AM talk radio and then to uh, cable news, both left and right, but mostly on the right. Um, and so he catered that and he did so by organizing hatreds. I used to, when I, I first, I'm late to a lot of things. Um, I, I first listened to Limbaugh and also conservative talk radio um, during a brief respite. I spent the first eight years, the nineties living abroad far away and I would come back, and I was in Oregon once at my mom's uh, place, chopping wood uh, for basically three weeks to make a little money in uh, 94, um, uh, uh, out by uh, Beaverton. Um, Sounds great. <laughs> super awesome. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Um, no, I, I needed the money. Um, and so anyways, I was bored, and I was chopping wood all day, so I was listening to this, and I was fascinated by, and this is, this, so this is like 94 after the midterms. And talk radio is like living, living high. And it was amazing how fast um, any given uh, segment uh, would take to get to the name Hillary Clinton. Oh. Hillary Clinton. Uh, and when I, came, when I moved back to the country in the late 90s, um, when I would uh, drive in my car, you know, you hit the little, uh, you know, the thing, the, the radio. Thing, the, that, the, 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 it's scan, it's the called speed. a radio. It's this old. Thing. But the button that does the yeah. deal. Um, and next, next to the cigarette lighter. And I would just keep my finger there and see how long it would take them to talk about either Teddy Kennedy or Hillary Clinton or like there was a, a third maybe just for a rule of three reasons. And it was always within 10 seconds. Like they didn't waste any time. <laughs> and so they kind of cultivated this audience. Um, and that audience was uh, organized around a sort of common loathing. Um, and I always found that and continued to find it. Um, uh just as a human, super off-putting. Uh, I remember the first uh, Republican convention that I went to, I think, was in 2004 um, in New York. It was the post-9-11 convention. And seeing the way that Teddy Kennedy was used as a line, um, and I, Teddy Kennedy can go eat a bag uh, wherever wherever he might be now. Yeah. Um, uh, no love for a guy who, you know, killed someone and cover, <laughs> covered up the crime. It's kind of a bad thing to do. Um, uh, but, um, you know, all he had to say was either like, and Teddy Kennedy, and then you'd hear this war whoop by all the people wearing their patriotic pajamas on the on the floor. Uh, back then it was Teddy Kennedy, and it was uh, uh, San Francisco. And, and granted, uh, you get a war whoop out of me about San Francisco these days. Um, but, like, you could see that it was like a, it was flicking a button. That button now uh, in Republican uh, uh, uh like grassroots things is just the media, right? Mm -hmm. That is the, the one, there isn't a politician that everyone is terrified. It's not like Joe Biden gets the heart pumping uh, fast, but the media does. So here's a question. So people do that. They like, they, they hate listened, but it's satisfied something. Do you think people start hate reading the New York times? Well, 
Or is it too narrow? It's just no. Just, I mean, the, you can't. You can't sustain it. I mean, I would. I would listen sometimes, but I would. I would. I would get bored after hearing Hillary Clinton again for for uh, the next time. So, like, yeah, people do, and this is true in the rise uh, in the advent of the internet, and it's an underappreciated thing. People listen to the opposition, or they watch the opposition, or the perceived opposition uh, from their own beliefs because they want to see how the other half lives. Conservatives listen to NPR. You know, um, a certain amount of. Uh, liberals or progressives who will watch Fox News because they sort of want to see what's going on. I used to listen to, when I lived in L.A., my, I lived in Los Feliz, and my daughter's best friend lived in Venice. And I would drive back and forth every weekend to take her to her house, and I used to listen to Dr. Laura. Oh, yeah. And that was actually a super pleasure. Of course, I disagreed with, you know, almost everything kind of like, I guess, politically was or she morally. Still, was she still self-helping a little bit, or or was it all politics? Sh- no, she was no, she was taking calls. Yeah. Like, hi, you know, like I'm the adoptive mother or like my husband did this. I have to say, even though we came from extremely different uh, spectrums, she gave some damn good advice. She was t- all tough love. All tough love. And I I, I thought it was pretty interesting. And yeah. yeah, she was she was she was fun. It was to Dr. Loris Schlesinger and the same as it was on KABC, if I'm not mistaken, and uh uh, they had another one who was even bigger at the time, but didn't take off nationally. It was also a woman doing kind of therapy esque stuff. Ellie is so good for radio. Yeah. Oh man. Well, you're in your car all the time. Yeah. So, um, okay. I guess the one thing I, I guess I talked about the Ben Smith thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to give myself a plug. Do. Uh, besides, um, yeah, I'm going to be doing a clubhouse tonight around nine thirty with some interesting people, Carol Markowitz and. Uh, Mary Catherine Ham. That'll be fun. What's the uh, organizing know. topic? I don't know. Carol's just like Nancy. Come and come do this with cool us. Cool ladies like, okay. on Clubhouse. Yeah. Oh, and Robbie. He can be an honorary lady. Robbie. He cares more about his hair that than you guys de- do about definitely. yours. Definitely. Um, but um, you know, in the spirit of just creating new media, some of you might know I have Substack, and it's called Make More Pie. Make more pie. Definitely We're making make- more pie. This is a piece of pie right now that you guys have. So go over and subscribe to my Substack, and if you like, want to pay for the subscription, that'll be great. But you don't have to. Yeah. So, um, well, this is going to be our last one for about ten days because I'm I'm jetting out of town tomorrow morning. Yeah. So thanks for joining us, and uh, subscribe to the Paloma Media channel, and we'll see you here in about eleven days. And for the fifth column fans who've been like giving us a hard time. Yeah. For the last few days, uh, we're recording here tonight, so um, stuff will be coming to you. It's not going to be live YouTube of uh, Moynihan doing the can-can dance. But it could be. But it could be. That's the thing. It just really could. You could just throw it on this channel. The the secret Paloma stripper OnlyFans for Moynihan. (laughs) (laughs) If he does the voice. Okay, guys. See you soon. Bye-bye. Perfect. That's the ideal. Ideal. It's ideal. always around there. It's th- between 35 and 41 minutes. They've all been the same. Cool.